Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. We've got a bunch of things to talk about today. Uh, just, I was just telling uh, Kate Riga, my co-host, that before, right before we started recording, I this will probably be published by the time you you hear this podcast. But you may have seen uh, Republicans are, you know, one of the one of the one of the arguments that Republicans are using about this kind of mini banking crisis we had over the weekend, and seems probably to be sort of settled down for now probably maybe um the what's making the rounds is this claim that silicon valley bank gave uh over 73 million dollars to blm blm and related causes okay and uh and and the point being that they were so focused on you know spreading woke culture that they weren't focused on risk and you know managing their bank accounts and or you know their bank ledger their bank book uh, and that's why they that's why they failed and that that general argument is is getting a lot of getting a lot of mileage the last few days but i saw this statistic and 73 million dollars for a single cause area is a lot of money even for a big prosperous bank, right? So I was like, that, that, that can't be right. So I, I ran the thing to ground. And the source for this is a database published yesterday by this outfit, the Claremont Institute. Now, Claremont Institute is this think tank that has been around for, I think it's been around for like 30 years. And, and one of the reasons I know that is, is that uh, many, many years ago, for a summer, I interned at a think tank which is like loosely affiliated with Claremont. That's a whole other story. Maybe we'll get to in a different in a different episode sometime. But in any case, they've always been right wing. But in the last you know half dozen years, they've made this decisive move to being like the Trump think tank. You know, we're going to kind of plug some PhDs into Trumpism and come up with you know come up with the thinking man's version of 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 the Trump revolution. Sometimes they call it national conservatism. And I mean thinking man's, right? Here I can just I don't have to use gender inclusive language because it's definitely the thinking man's. In any case, so they put out this database and I look and um they cite, you know, you can kind of plug in any corporation and find out how much they give to BLM. And in case you're, you know, they're not leaving any doubt what they mean by BLM. They talk about the find out the corporations that funded the BLM riots in the summer of 2020, you know, the, all those protests and after after George Floyd's murder. Okay. So I look up uh, Silicon Valley Bank and um, there's like nine documents that are all, you know, um, you know, corporate responsibility documents put out by the bank, a few uh, SEC filings, and none of them have any, there's nothing I could find. And I mean, again, some of these things are like very long and it's all, you know, it's, it's corporate responsibility talk, right? So there's a lot of, a lot of PowerPoints and uh, a, a lot of pictures of non-white people. And it's, 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 it's that kind of stuff telling all the good things they're doing, et cetera. Um, I couldn't find anything that that remotely backed this up. I, I saw in those documents giving to sort of diversity, civil rights type causes of like a million dollars or something like that. In any, okay, so it didn't really seem to pan out, but maybe there's something I missed in there. And there's a lot, you know, a lot in those documents. But then I started looking at like some other corporations, you know, 
what did the, how much did they give to BLM? And you have examples of like, for instance, they list 3M Corporation, you know, the big diversified chemical and scotch tape company, whatever they do, everything under the sun. So it says they pledged $50 million to BLM. So I look it up and it's a, you know, five-year, $50 million commitment, but they listed back in 2020, like the first kind of serving of money, right? And $5 million for the United Negro College Fund, that's BLM. And I looked at other ones. There's ones, another, another corporation, I believe Abbott Laboratories, you know, the guys that make the little, the little swabs you put in your nose and you're testing yourself for COVID, right? They uh, gave 20, $25 million for uh, uh, STEM education, basically, right? Science, blah, 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 you know, science, uh, what is sci- science, technology, engineering, and medicine, education in uh, black communities, minority communities. And it, it keeps going like this. So basically, according to this, according to this thing that everybody is like citing now, anything, anything tied to black people, basically, United Negro College Fund, any civil rights group, anything tied to black people is now BLM and the people who funded uh, the quote unquote riots back in 2020. I mean, it's really, <laughs> I, I shouldn't be surprised, but it's really gross. Um, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, and, you know, look, they at the beginning, they say BLM and related causes. That's their kind of catch all, right? Um, and, the you, you know, if you were listing another sort of like, you know, left-wing diversity advocacy group, depending on the group, it might be reasonable to say that's kind of, you know, BLM adjacent. You know, not everything that is, there, there's no like official BLM nonprofit. Like there's, there's technically, there's a few groups with that name, but that might, you know, that kind of group might be within the realm of... uh uh, you know, related causes, but scholarships at historically black colleges and universities, that's not BLM. It's just not. And, and again, it, it kind of shows you where these, um, where these, you know, do you call do you call that misinformation? Is it a conspiracy theory? It's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not even sure it rises to misinformation. It's just, it's just lying, organized, well-funded lying. Um, so as usual, uh, you know, today we're going to try to do uh, reverse the reverse of that kind of, you know, shower you with some truth as we do every time on the Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, before we do that, um, uh, this is, you know, this is a paid announcement, but it's it's still 100% true. I'm actually drinking some Grady's cold brew right now. Remember the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's cold brew iced coffee, you know. Spring, I guess it's in in on the East Coast now. We just had a, a kind of a, a semi storm, something like that. But spring is on the way, and that means tailgates, picnics, camping, and cold brew. Grady's All in One Cold Brew Kit makes thirty six servings of gourmet New Orleans style coffee for less than a buck a cup. Just add water and store it in your fridge for cold brewed iced coffee you want to sip all spring. And be sure to take some on your next vacation so you never have to worry about missing your morning brew. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So yesterday, my uh, my colleague Kate uh, had had a scoop with she, you know, the day before yesterday. So So Monday, news came out that you know, one of these two or three kind of right wing's favorite Trump judges down in Texas that they take everything to because, you know, they bring it in this one in this one district in Texas. Uh, He is he's hearing a case. And the reason they do the reason they bring it to this guy and like one other guy is that, you know, it's like that old Mikey cereal, you know, he'll eat anything or he won't eat anything or he's he's a he's a sure thing. You know, a phrase we used back in my day. He's a sure thing. And and this has to do with um, pills you can take for a, a medicinal abortion that is obviously becoming a has has become a bigger thing over recent years because of the ease of use, et cetera, et cetera. Even, an even bigger deal now since uh, a surgical abortion. I'm not sure if that's those are all, you know, abortions you get in an abortion clinic are, are now not allowed. 
are, are illegal or close to illegal in a lot of countries. So being able to have access to these prescription medicines that safely induce an abortion is a big deal. Okay. So they're having a, uh, having a hearing tied to one of these lawsuits. And the judge basically says, hey, let's keep this kind of hush hush, okay? Let's not tell anybody because I'm getting a lot of grief online and people are making fun of me. Um, and so Kate got the transcript first, and and you know that's a, that's a nice that's a nice scoop. Some uh, I like seeing that kind of hustle and 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 legwork by our team getting you the news first. But it turns out Kate had to go like full MacGyver to get this thing. So I just wanted let's start out. What so what was the story? How did yeah. how did you how did you get the uh, transcript? Well, let me back it up really quickly. So this is a case we've talked about before on the pod. It's over the FDA approval of mifepristone, which is 20 years old. Um but like like you say Josh, this case has always kind of seemed like it has a predetermined outcome, right? This is the judge that they go the right wing goes to when they want a guaranteed win. Um, obviously, Texas is governed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is super right wing. And then you have this U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, this is kind of business as usual in the judge shopping pipeline. And he had got all his briefings. This was like three weeks ago that um, my editor, John Light, and I were like spending a lot of our weekend refreshing, you know, the docket and, and trying to make sure that we didn't miss the order because everyone just kind of figured, you know, foregone conclusion, as soon as the briefings are in, he's going to issue his decision. Okay, that doesn't happen. And weeks pass. And everyone's kind of like, what's going on here? You know, is this a case of because there's so much scrutiny on this case, he's feeling he's squirming a little bit and he kind of wants to look like I'm, you know, I'm reading everything. I'm taking my time. So we're just waiting, waiting, waiting for this decision to drop. And then last Friday, the first person I saw was a, a legal analyst on MSNBC, but she noted that in the docket, one of the numbers had been skipped. Every entry on the docket, whether it be kind of like notice of appearance of attorneys, you know, housekeeping stuff, in addition to like briefings themselves, each is numbered and there was a number skipped. And usually that indicates a sealed entry. So, you know, something that's part of the docket, but that they're keeping secret except to the parties involved. And then over the weekend, the Washington Post wrote a story that the judge had gathered the lawyers in the case on a phone conference to tell them there was going to be a hearing today, Wednesday, and asking and telling them he wasn't going to make it public until the 11th hour in an attempt to, you know, reduce the amount of people that could go there. This court hearing is happening in Amarillo. So it's not like, you know, it's a it's a bustling metropolis. So it was going to be a hike, you know, for, for protesters and reporters. Okay, so we knew the existence of the call. And then what happened yesterday, my scoop was getting the transcript of the call. Um, so basically what happened is we got a docket entry early Tuesday morning um, saying that, it, it basically admitting the existence of the call, right? Like saying uh, this had happened. He's basically backfilling in the docket with everything that he had tried to keep secret now that everyone pretty much knows about it. So, and, and the funny thing is with things like this, there is usually some things you can expect, right? A lot of courts, uh, if you want copies of stuff, they have different methods of it, but you go to the the court reporter or the court uh, clerk, right? And you ask them and sometimes you have to pay for it and whatever, like that's kind of normal. But this was, it was just so weird. Every step of it was weird. I like call the court reporter, leave a message with one number. He calls me back with another number and then tells me to email him which I'm like, okay, fine, you know? And then the email address I get is like a personal AOL account, you know, not like John Smith at texas.courts.gov. It's just like his AOL. And he then responds to my email with a Venmo account and tells me to, which and if, if any of our listeners don't know, it's just like an, an app that makes it easier to, you know, pay each other back. Like this is what we all used in college to split bar tabs kind of thing. Sort of like PayPal, but a little more modern. Exactly. Kind of. yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going to, you know, send the money to him. And I am messaging John, you know, one of our colleagues, my editor on the side and being like, I honestly, this might be a scam, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it also might be a scoop. So let's just see what happens. Because the account on the Venmo, it was linked to like a photo of an older woman. And I had talked to 
a man on the phone. So I was just like, I have no idea what's going on. But they only asked for like $25. So I was like, if it's a scam... I'll take it on the chin like that. I'm willing to pay that much for a potential scoop. Right. So anyway, uh, this court reporter, Todd, ends up being on the up and up and he sends me uh, the the copy of the transcript. And, you know, I I had it first. So we got the big scoop and uh, we, you know, all the kind of fun Twitter accolades and stuff. And then we are one of the few outlets that, you know, whenever possible, um, like embeds the documents we're working off in our pieces, which I don't know, maybe that sounds like a small deal, but I think it's um, really important to both transparency and because so much of the reporting world is like kind of shitty and aggressive and cutthroat to each other. And I kind of like the idea of, you know, we got this information, good job, big story for us. And now like, here's the information and you can, you know, write your own story or dig through it and see if there's anything we missed, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that's kind of the story and that's where we came down. And it was really cool you know, of course, like getting a big splashy scoop is cool, but it's also cool to be part of like the reporting effort here because this was, you know, a federal judge who's trying to keep one of the most important cases in the country just out of the public eye. You know, it's just it's so like anti everything we stand for as reporters. Like this is a man who has people's health and and, you know, uh, well-being in his hands and he's like kind of grousing that you know he doesn't want protesters to come or that he's gotten um, death threats to the courtroom and he doesn't want to deal with that and like you know obviously people shouldn't be doing death threats if that's real that's bad but the and thing I think is a major if right there. but the thing is here like also courtrooms have security his was always going to have security so this idea of like we're keeping on on the down low to like you know, because making it public is unsafe. It's just kind of a stretch and pretty clearly at least tainted with ulterior motives to keep the press away, to keep protesters away. And that kind of ties into something we talked about ages ago. But back when immediately post Dobbs, you know, there was the big flurry of people protesting at the um the justices' homes and they were like going nuts about that. And it's just, it ties into this like crazy amount of entitlement that you should get to make this decision that could hurt so many people. You get to wield this huge unchecked power and yet you shouldn't have to deal with the hassle of protesters or reporters or people who are angry about this. Like that's a step too far. Yeah, and let me say something about this whole, you know, death threats thing. Look, I, I, I'm not a federal judge, but I've been in the controversy business for some, for some time. It's not fun getting emails from people saying nasty things to you, sometimes vaguely, you know, scary things to you. Um, it certainly wouldn't surprise me if this guy has gotten a lot, been attacked online, get nasty emails. Uh, you know, some people may have said, hey, I hope you drop dead. And, and even when you're the recipient of that, Someone else sees it and says, "Look, they hope. Okay, anybody can hope anything. It it doesn't. It's it doesn't feel great when it's when it's you. However, however, um, we live in contentious times. Um, people say things. A lot of things people say. If you step back, you can say this person is being nasty and cruel. They don't represent a threat to me. But but federal judges." have the U.S. Marshals, they've, they've got stuff when things are serious. And believe me, when they get a real threat, it's reported and, and, and things happen. And in this case, now, you know, protesting outside judges' houses, nah, I'm not crazy about that. And I don't mean crazy about it that I think it should be like made illegal. I'm just, you know, everybody has their personal comfort level of what they think is, you know, I'm for that or not. Uh, when that happens, there are U.S. Marshals there, right? I mean, the, the point is, there are, we have very rightly a whole police force, which has as one of its primary missions, guarding, protecting members of the federal judiciary. Um, the other point is that there are things, sometimes certain judicial actions are kept secret. You have gag orders and stuff like that, right? So, so if something is really going on, there are, there are things you can do that are by the book. 
And to, to Kate's point here, the fact that he's like, hey, let's just keep this on the down low. Can we just like, you know, talk in pig Latin here? I mean, clearly that's because he just doesn't want to, he doesn't want to catch any grief over this. If there were something real, we'd know it. That's my, that's my take. And, and as you say, kind of like if you are, there's, the, there's this basic thing in our society now, this print, this concept, and you see this a lot among the big, big donors. There's a big push now among the mega donors, mega, mega, mega donors, that precisely because I'm giving so much, I need to be confidential because giving so much pisses people off. And so I need to be protected. And, you know, we live in a pretty contentious time and no one legally giving money to for any political purpose should have to fear violence against themselves. But, you know, it, it, it's sort of one of these things where the reason we allow kind of unlimited giving is on the concept that it's speech. And that concept itself is is at least dubious in some ways. But if, if we're going to think about it in the, in the conceptual framework of, of speech, speech is when you say things and people hear you saying them. It's part of the same thing. So, it, so it's, it's anyway, I, right. I, I, I jumped into the middle of, of, of our discussion here, but it's not that we are being cavalier about threats. I think that there is every reason to believe that that is not what was happening here. Yeah. And then the kicker here is kind of in response to this big outcry, um, because, you know, this this had gotten to the point where you had various media organizations like filing together to protest the fact that the judge was trying to keep this stuff, you know, like improperly secret and, and all that. And then so then there was an entry on the docket saying, no worries, pals, because Wednesday's hearing is going to be live streamed. We're going to have a live audio stream, which is like, OK, Tariff, right? Because this is in nowhere like Amarillo and it's a big hearing and that's great. And so my plan for this morning was to uh, settle in and flip on the live stream, right? Well, I'm looking on the website. I'm looking in the docket. I'm on Pacer and I'm just like, huh, weird. I can't find this link anywhere. And this is a court that doesn't do live streams usually, right? So you're just kind of like, okay, so are they learning how to do like a live stream for this event? That seems a bit ambitious and a bit odd that I can't find hide nor hair of where that link would be. So, you know, I call the the clerk and I'm like, hey, you know, just looking for the live stream link. Can you give me any guidance? And she's like, yeah, we don't do live stream or audio stream here. And I'm like, yep, I, I know you usually don't. But uh, this one specific case is that I'm looking for. And she's like, right. So the way that's going to work is the sound of the argument happening in a courtroom in Amarillo is going to be piped through speakers at a courthouse in Dallas. And that is the quote unquote audio <laughs> live stream. So you can hear the arguments, I guess, if you're in the room in Amarillo or if you are somewhere in, in, in the Dallas. Dallas courtroom and otherwise right. you're out of luck. Yeah, and well. it's just, it's so frustrating. I mean, because first of all, it's kind of ironic. We have this whole series of scandals about this judge keeping a huge case under wraps and out of the public eye. And then this is kind of their big win for transparency <laughs> fix. And then it's just also, you know, on, on a more meta level, it's frustrating because we don't have the resources of a lot of like the corporate journalistic outlets, right? And so for us to kind of send me to Texas on like a few, on a couple hours uh, notice, maybe we could kind of take the hit and do it. But it's just, it's frustrating to have this like bait and switch, right? Well, it also sounds like if we sent you to Dallas, there's a good chance they would say, not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, some, or like, oh, what room do you know it's in? And they, you know, more right. bait and switch about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's just, it ties in to the overall theme of this, right? Which is like, because of the way Texas 
divisions in their districts are and the way right-wing litigants are taking advantage of that and the fact that it's governed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. We now just have this like one extremely hackish judge who has this enormous case in front of him. And, and remind, remind, our, remind our listeners about, okay, so federal court system, trial judges are the district level, then the appellate is circuit, and then the Supreme Court above there. And so what is it about... Uh, this one district, how do you know you're going to get this guy? How, right. Remind us that part of it. So basically, there are divisions within the districts, and um, this judge is in the northern district of Texas, but his specific division, he's the only judge. So if you file in Amarillo, you are 100% sure you're going to get him. And the thing that's weird here is like some amount of trying to game the judicial system not that new, right? Like this is why the term used to be forum shopping because people, if you had a case that was kind of not really geographically specific or didn't have like a defendant really tied to one area, you could kind of be like, okay, I'm going to go somewhere that's governed by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals because they tend to be more liberal and that will probably work out better for me. And this like, you know, this was the Obama administration, like this has been happening. But the new innovation ever since Trump kind of got some of these just like died in the wool, unapologetic partisans on the federal bench is that now people are specific judge shopping. So finding the specific person that they want to get the case into the hands of. And that's new. And it's been incredibly successful because anytime you're suing the government, you can argue everyone's harmed by a federal government action if that's your stance, right? It applies to the whole country. So you can go in Texas, you can go anywhere. And recently, the DOJ has been filing for transfer of venue. So trying to say, at the very least, this looks bad, right? And like, for the kind of controlling assumption is that judges don't want to look like they're being partisan tools. And so in the old days, if you got a, a transfer request that was not like trying to get a, a better outcome, but it seemed clearly rooted in kind of partisan concerns or concerns of the appearance of impropriety. A normal judge would be like, okay, fine, you know, whatever. But these judges are just like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that, right? Now, is it, would it, would it be in, in the, in, when you, when you ask for that, is the final word the Fifth Circuit or who, who make, I guess the initial thing is whether the judge, it's a request that that judge bow right. out. Can the Fifth Circuit uh, step in, and I. But I guess the whole point is Fifth Circuit's pretty stacked with right with exactly. Republican judges as it is, so they're kind of in on it in a way. Right. Yeah. And so when I I did a piece kind of recently investigating this and finding out if there are any uh, remedies, you know, um, and basically the the consensus that everyone, well, that all the experts who study this have kind of coalesced behind is that it used to be that when you were um, challenging uh, state and later, later federal laws on constitutional grounds all the cases would go to like a randomized three-judge panel with immediate review by the Supreme Court. And that fell out of fashion basically because it was putting a lot on the Supreme Court's docket, you know, because every appeal in those cases would go to them. And so we don't have that anymore except for redistricting cases, which still always go to three-judge panels. So now people are saying, just bring it back, right? A randomized panel that makes it like pretty impossible to get the judge you're hoping for with immediate review by the Supreme Court, which isn't as much a problem now because the Supreme Court's workload has plummeted since the 80s and is at like all time lows now. So they have enough space to deal with these kind of cases. And you could even specify that if your case is seeking a national injunction of an agency action of, of like a federal government action, it should have to go to these three judge boards and not let one judge at the lowest level of the federal court system have the power yeah, to this is make really a decision a for the whole country. A trial <laughs> judge. I mean, and not, not anything against trial judges, but that's not the idea that a single trial judge can make a a highly consequential policy decision for the whole country is really absurd. I mean, I do, I do want to remind our, our, our listeners that, you know, he's in the Fifth Circuit and in any of these cases, the Fifth Circuit could, I mean, someone would have to appeal, if I'm understanding this right, someone would have to appeal the judge's injunction. But I mean, that's not a problem. They're always going to be appealed. And then the Fifth Circuit could come in and say, OK, you know, you, this has still got to be litigated, but we're not going to like, we're, we're not going to uh, allow you to make this kind of global policy decision totally on your own. But 
the key is that the Fifth Circuit is stacked with maybe not quite as, uh, you know, unethical, openly partisan judges, but more or less so that that's not happening. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and it's also the case that this this guy in particular, Kaxmerick, he has handed down like a couple immigration decisions that one of which was like so bad that, that this, this Supreme Court kind of slapped him on the wrist when they uh, overturned him. Um, but the problem is, you know, by the time they got around to doing that, his decision had been like in place for a year. So for all yeah. intents and purposes, he dictated immigration policy for a year. So yeah, it's there's so much there's so many things in. I mean, this gets at a different issue. But there are there are a lot of basic ways that that have crept into our judicial system over recent decades that it really undermines the basic principles of the system because at a certain level justice delayed is justice denied and i was i was uh, on another podcast a couple weeks ago um that has a bunch of like appellate lawyer types and uh what came up in that discussion was basically you know uh, mike pence has made this argument of hey uh, you know not only am i vice president and kind of i get in a little executive privilege action i'm also a senator and so i get the senate action too right my privileges there and 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 to be clear, you know, since he's the president of the Senate, when he was vice president, does he have to testify about Trump, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Pretty much no one thinks this is a, a legitimate argument. Uh, and the people who I was talking with were like, this is, this is bogus. But they were also saying, however, it's a novel argument. So there's no precedent because no one's been absurd enough to bring it up before. Ergo, it's going to take a year to wind through the courts. Now, the whole January 6th thing has been, and in some ways, the, the Russia investigation before that has been, has had over it the reality that in a couple of years, you're going to have someone new in charge, right? In the executive branch, mm -hmm. possibly. And then they'll just, they'll just kill the case. So there's something wrong with our system if someone can bring up a patently frivolous argument and that buys them a year delay which may have the effect of short-circuiting the entire process. Right. In this case, it's not just uh, that a, a Republican could be president, could win the presidency in 2024. But again, the idea is that once you're into the late summer of 2023, Trump's a presidential candidate and it becomes political. Again, these are different issues from what you're talking about here. But at a certain level... At a certain point, there's a breakdown in in whether you have a justice system or not. If if delays have this um, highly substantive, effective role in the process, right? And you know, kind of keeping in in this theme, uh, let's talk about the other you know thing I was doing yesterday, which was watching the oral arguments at the North Carolina Supreme Court who live streams their oral arguments. Thank you, North Carolina. And this... And, that, and that's the state judiciary. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. Not even the federal judiciary. Yep. Okay. Too right. And so this case, this is the North Carolina Supreme Court rehearing the case that they just decided one year ago, um, which was to slap down the Republican congressional and legislative maps as unconstitutional, egregious partisan gerrymanders. So then 2022 happens, a ton more Republicans win the races for North Carolina Supreme Court seats. All of a sudden, that court is five to two in favor of the right-wing justices. And they are rehearing this case, not because any of the evidence has changed or anything about the situation has changed, except that there are now more Republicans on the court. So enough to kind of give the state-level Republicans a win on the maps to let them kind of gerrymander with impunity. But while while why we're interested in this case, aside from the fact that gerrymandering is obviously bad and anti-democratic, is that this is the case that birthed Moore v. Harper, the Supreme Court case, which centers in large part on the independency legislature theory, which we've talked about on this pod before. So that whole thing is so muddy now because the Supreme Court is saying, like, uh, what do we do now? They're rehearing the case that was at the base of the case that we heard back in December. So the Supreme Court asked for more briefings to 
basically how people tell them what to do about it. Meanwhile, North Carolina is kind of plugging ahead with rehearing this case. And so when I listened yesterday, you know, I was partially listening for the independent state legislature theory to see if that would come up on the state level at this point, because it kind of seems like the North Carolina legislators are taking the posture of independent state legislature theory will fight another day. It'll get another case. Right now, we've got an opportunity to make sure that we have political dominance over the state for the next decade, no matter how people vote. So like, we're going to take that consolation prize for now. Um, And that's very much what it was. Like the hearings, nobody even mentioned the theory. Um, There could be the kind of like best of all worlds if you're a Republican, which is that They'll do the gerrymandering on the state level, and then the Supreme Court will say, well, okay, we're not going to focus on the map part, but we're just going to hand down our decision on independent state legislature theory because, you know, we're interested and we want to do that. Um, But it was just, it's funny because the oral arguments were so... Fox Newsy almost like court TV. Like this is a, an audio stream and a video stream. And just for context, like the Supreme Court only does an audio stream. That's also only since pandemic days. But so, th- so this one, you know, the camera shifts to whoever's talking. So you and there's this new guy, Richard Dietz, who just won his election this cycle by like low 50s, you know, just kind of squeaked out the Democrat there. And Oh my God, just like full audition for Tucker Carlson going on. Like, and this is on the state level, unlike the Supreme Court, they actually usually keep the time restrictions strict. So it really is like each side gets 30 minutes and then we are cutting it off. Whereas the Supreme Court will be like, okay, you have an hour, you have an hour. And then, you know, seven hours later, arguments are done. But so 30 minutes, that's not like a huge amount of time because you're trying to make an argument and you're fielding questions and everything. And then this guy kind of waits until the lawyer for the plaintiffs, um, you know, the, the not state uh, Republicans gets up and he's going on and on about how one of the amici, so not one of the parties in the suits, just an outside group that's like, we have a stake in this and here's what we think about it. One of the amici called the Republican kind of attempt to rehear this this case, the lawsuit that's based on, they called it frivolous. And this judge losing his mind about it. In all my years of private practice, I remember distinctly the one time someone accused me of being frivolous. Like that can come with sanctions. That can ruin a career. And this poor lawyer is sitting there going like, well, that's not my client. So I don't know what to tell you. Like I have nothing to do with those people. Can I please get back to my interpretation of the state constitution? Right. And it just goes back and forth for like ages with this, this poor guy trying to be like, I have nothing to add. I don't, I'm not asking for sanctions for anyone in this case. Like those weren't my words. And then we get to the end of the argument and things are already like a little bit tense. And you already know that this judge is like not going to let the moment pass without getting the final word. And so uh, our poor beleaguered lawyers back up trying to do his rebuttal at the very end. And so this guy goes, you know, uh, there's a jurisdictional question here. Where do you come down on that? And this guy is like, well, the Supreme Court just asked for briefing on that exact question. So we will file with them by the due date, uh, as I was saying. And this guy's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm a justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court. And I'm asking you for your legal view here. And part of the difficulty is because there are different parties in the Supreme Court suit and the state level suit. And not all those parties are on the same page about this because they're they have like different vested interests at this point. Right. So this guy is like, I'm going to file in the Supreme Court. Can I please finish my thing? And this guy's just like wounded, like unbelievably affronted that he can't get a question, an answer to his question. Um, So, you know, our poor lawyer guy is like, can I please have time back to finish my statement here? And the chief justice who, by the by, had done a lot of antics of his own during this was like, you can have 10 seconds. And it's like, okay, great. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) It's funny that I, I, I can't remember who I heard saying this, but that uh, the introduction of audio record, uh, you know, audio streams in the Supreme Court, which I think we should have, frankly, totally. I think we should have video. I, I think the I think the uh, the idea that we need to keep those hearings cloistered is greatly outdated, given everything that has happened in, in, in recent decades. Um, but these people said that it's that it's totally changed, that everybody's now basically auditioning for, uh, uh, y- you know, Aaron 
on 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 Twitter with his video clips, right? It kind of like <laughs> what 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 were you, you going to get picked up on uh, on on Fox News or something like that? Uh, and not just the not just the conservatives. You have uh, you know uh, Thomas or Alito who are the ones who really really want to you know kind of drop some Fox bait. Um, but you've got the you've got the you know Democratic appointees too who also want to come in and 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 you know make their points and their points may be better, but they they know that there's audio. They want their, uh, you know, I guess it's, I guess the point is, is that uh, Supreme Court opinions, although this is changing, remain fairly tight and straight. Like you can make outrageous arguments, but you need to make them in, in fairly uh, technical and small C conservative language. Uh, as we've seen of late, in the hearings, you can you can totally let your kind of QAnon, you know, freak flag fly. And that's OK, because, you know, little one liners and gags and all this kind of stuff. And and frankly, again, I think uh, I think with where we are as a country, we need to demystify the court. I mean, yes, it's going to it's going to lead to some it's going to lead to some uh, playing to the playing to the uh, microphones, playing to the cameras potentially in the future. Um, but people who should know who these people are. And, and, and they're not, uh, they are not physicists. They're not genomic scientists. And what I mean by that is they're, you know, physicists, what they do is real. And you know why we know that? Because nuclear warheads blow up, right? It's a real thing they do. Legal interpretation is not the same. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to have a PhD to to understand the equities involved in, in the things that are being decided and the things that are being thought through here. I think another piece of it, I agree with everything you said, and I also agree that even if it encourages the, you know, the budding actors on the courts, it's much better to be able to hear and see what they're doing. But I think another piece of this is that there are just so many cases now that are not actually resting on complicated questions of legal interpretation. It's just kind of a volley of partisan attempts to, you know, in, in, to to get a lock on power in kind of whatever world this is. And the North Carolina one is such a good example because we're not arguing about, um, you know, the, the data that shows if the Republican maps are too partisan or not. You know, we're not arguing any of that. They're literally just taking this case up again so they can give Republicans a favorable outcome. So it's not like you're going to kind of spend your time talking about, oh, this county versus this county. You know, these people have a, an economic commonality. These people have a cultural history and com blah, blah. It's like not about that, right? It's about the Democrats on the bench being like, in legal speak, this is bullshit. And the Republicans being like, let's kind of talk about something else, you know, so, which is why you had the chief justice going like, so uh, to the, you know, of course, to the one person of color involved in this whole process, who's a, a lawyer for the plaintiffs was saying, uh, is it, is it a, you know, is it suspect to have one party dominate a school board? Is that partisan gerrymandering? You know, what about a, a, a library board? What, what about a county? Like, and all this ridiculous stuff. And then he just kind of moved into like alluding that the experts who helped with the, you know, the mathy, sciencey stuff of uh, this map would only come out 99.99, whatever, um, you know, accusing them of like partisan taint and stuff. And it's just a whole, it's just, it's just so deeply unserious. You know, I came out of it being like, even compared to the Supreme Court, which is like a rodeo some days, this one was just silly. And I, I was telling John and he was like, it sounds like a congressional hearing. And I was like, that's exactly what it felt like. Well, and, and, and many, I think this is the case in, in North Carolina, I'm not sure, but, you know, many states that are elected. Yep. And that just introduces a whole, I mean, at least, you know, in, in the, uh, well, <laughs> it's maybe changed in the, in the last half dozen years, but at least the federal level, you have to, you've got to get to 40 or 50 pretending you're really taking it all seriously to get mm -hmm. on the court, right? You can do whatever you want once you get there, but at the state level, it's just some local lawyer who raised enough money to kind of run a campaign. And that's and that's and that's it. And different different states, I think, have different cultures. But we even saw um, in well, we saw the primaries. But in this in this ongoing Supreme mm -hmm. Court uh, campaign in Wisconsin, uh, y you know, there's I think 
substantively no comparison between the de facto Republican candidate and the de facto Democratic candidate. If I'm not mistaken, they're they're formally uh, nonpartisan races, uh, but it's a it's a partisan campaign. In mm-hmm. everything, but in everything, but uh, you know, in 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 nominal terms, and that and that does make it that does make it different. I mean, it's you know, it's funny when you talk about the Jeremy. I was actually I, I've thought about it's not I, I've thought about actually sp- almost like you know maybe we do it as a TPM project or kind of spinning up a separate even nonprofit to do it or something. That I think it would be very helpful to have ratings of states by democratic action. And what I mean by that, I mean small d. Um, and I've, I've given some thought to, um, to, you know, how would you measure this? You'd need, you would need, uh, you know, kind of metrical, objective ways of measuring it. And, and to, to the questions that this, this state Supreme Court justice seemed to be asking, you know, <laughs> For a school board or a library board or anything else to be dominated by one party, if ever, if that's how everybody votes, great, you know that's mm-hmm. and and where you see it is, and I think there'd be ways you could sort of, you know, uh, work this out. If a on any given election in a system of geographical representation. You're not going to have a perfect matchup between raw partisan vote statewide and how that comes out in the state legislature. But it should, like, for instance, and even at the federal level, usually Republicans, you know, do better than their raw vote in, in congressional elections. In 2022 is reverse. Republicans did better in the raw vote than they ended up getting in, in, in uh, representatives. Um, but you could do a thing where you say, like, you know, if a if a state routinely has one party, uh, you know, get five percent more, you know, 50 50 raw vote statewide and one party has 55 percent of the legislators or 60 percent of the legislators, you'd have to figure out where you kind of mark that. But at a certain point, you'd say there's a basic problem in this state system of representation. The people don't actually get to control, uh, uh, you know, what happened. Anyway, just a kind of something I've been thinking of, because I, I do think that's a basic thing. You have, I mean, maybe it will change now in Wisconsin, because if, um, again, if the de facto Democrat wins this uh, Supreme Court seat, not only will that have potentially a big impact on the 2024 presidential election, but it will also bring up the standing of the state redistricting. And that is, a, that is, I'm sure, I'm sure there are states that are as, I'm sure there are states where the core democratic process has broken down to as great or greater a degree. But Wisconsin is a big deal because it has such federal implications. Mm-hmm. And basically the way, I, I, you know this, and probably many of our, our listeners know this, but in Wisconsin, basically, the only question in the state legislature now is whether Republicans get a majority or supermajority. Even even when Democrats win the statewide elections, they still get clobbered in, 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 the, sta- in the state legislature. That's just a broken down system. It, there's, again, there's never a perfect equation, but it should not be always tilted in one direction to such an extreme degree. All right, speech right. over. <laughs> okay, so let's just kind of round out our episode with this is something you noted in a post, Josh, that these big Republican hearings that we had, you know, they were touted ahead of time in like the kind of lame ducky time you had these guys being like, we are getting ready now. We are sending out subpoenas or we are gathering information, you know, Comer and Jim Jordan being the kind of the head honchos of the investigatory committees. They were going on Fox to kind of lay out the docket and then talk about how Hunter Biden's life is going to be miserable. And you know, now we're a few months into the new congressional term uh, and uh, seem to have gone off with a less a bang, more a, a what is that expression? Oh, uh, wait, whimper. wait less, yeah, whimper, whimper, not a bang. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I, you know, I kind of, in the post I did, a lot of it was just like, I'm not sure what the difference is. And the, it, was just, it was more kind of proposed ideas. I wasn't even sure if they were right or if they were that significant. You know, one is basically that I think 
a lot of the mainstream media is just in a different place than it was even half a dozen years ago in the sense of people are looking at this stuff and saying, oh, come on. Like they're not, they're not, there's not a, there is not as strong a both sides impulse. And I think that is um, accentuated by the fact that Democrats seem much more aggressive. You know, there was that, there was that, you know, a staff report they put out that seemed to kind of like basically just like clothesline Jim Jordan at the before his hearing even started. Like everybody was just laughing at it. And so that's one issue. But the other one is just that if you if you dig into these hearings, they're all about vindicating Trump about something that was not fair years and years ago like did not enough were we not allowed to talk about a lab leak for three months in 2020 um or are we still talking about that there was four days before the 2020 election when we couldn't talk you know when 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 you couldn't post about hunter biden's laptop on twitter like okay like are we still talking about like like is there anything on the laptop that we need to know about Right. So it's all this like retrospective and a lot of it's just about January 6th. And I, th- I think at some level, at some level, kind of like it's old stuff. It's not even about the stuff itself. It's about someone was allegedly unfair to you five years ago. And, the, and we're just supposed to kind of get wound up about that again when it's probably not even true. And I, and I, and I, I, I think that is kind of some of the through line. But it's funny. I'm, I'm curious your take since you, you know, you live down there. You're up on the hill a lot. A lot of these hearings, like I only found out like a week later, they even happened. Like no one, like no one even talks about them. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is true. I think also, um, and, you, and you made this point in your post, but I think it's really key is that these people can get so cordoned off and like the MAGA universe that it makes it unintelligible to people outside the universe and also for reporters, like a lot more work. I remember back when, you know, we would have to like kind of attempt to fact check a Trump speech and you'd just be like, I don't even know what he's talking about. Like, I can't fact check it because he's saying this phrase that probably you know, evoke strong emotions in his base. But I'm like, I don't, I don't know what this is, you know, and then you have to go down a rabbit hole to find like that to decode that one phrase, which is a a mid award salad type thing. Um, And Democrats, as part of the aggression, kind of an even more recent example than the the long pre-buttle to Jim Jordan is um, on oversight, like Raskin and his people made a huge deal about the this information which seemed to suggest that Comer, as soon as Republicans took over the committee, they basically told uh, Mazars, this like uh, you know firm money accounting holding firm. account, yeah, that yeah. they were like not really going to seek the Trump documents anymore. They're like, you know, we're not really interested in this. So like, don't, don't worry about like gathering things together. And I guess Raskin's people kind of found out about that and then just made a huge stink. Like the biggest news coming out of that committee was coming out from the ranking member accusing the chair of, you know, impropriety and like wielding his power in an unscrupulous way. And that's just like a complete hijacking of the narrative. Right. And then it's like what you're saying, what does Comer have to offer in, in rebuttal, like Hunter Biden stuff, which is again, it exists in that weird cordoned off space. Like we've been relitigating it for ages and, and like that, nothing new is coming out. I think that's kind of, that is another essential part of it. And I mean, the only thing that makes me wonder if these are really the the, the cause is that we were having these same conversations in the 90s with Clinton in the Republican House, the same in the in the in the teens with uh, Barack Obama and, and, and the Republican House. But at, but at a certain level, you, you know, any good hearing, you need news to, you know, you get a little you get a little juice just saying we're holding a hearing. This person is going to have to kind of, you know, put their hand on the Bible. I guess we don't even do that anymore at the hearings, you know, put, you know, uh, swear an oath or whatever. Um but you've got to have some, you got to have a hook, you know, and even if it's a bogus hook, you need a, you need some hook. And in most of these cases, you're talking about stuff that we've, we've literally been talking about for two or three years. And it, it's just hard to get a, a headline out of that. People, people know that, well, I don't think people know the full truth about this Hunter Biden's laptop, but they know that there, there are at least a lot of files that were Hunter Biden's. There's, he was out trying to make business deals. He was snorting a lot of Coke or whatever he was doing and like, you know, taking selfies in the bathtub and I don't know, dick pics and whatever. And kind of like, okay. And that's weird. 
and he's the president's son and and I'm sure everybody's kind of embarrassed but I mean we we were talking about that two and a half years ago exactly like 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 what are we what are we talking about here like it's it just doesn't it's it's just not new and and it does um to a certain extent all partisans have some of this dynamic but you see it especially in the sort of the Trump cinematic universe that um there's this sense of kind of like you know we've been talking about this thing forever but we're going to talk about it in a hearing and then everybody's going to have to get up as upset about it as 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 we are and that's not really true necessarily and democrats saw some of this during you know some of their hearings um under you know under trump uh and the the the, the common dynamic here is you know if 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 everybody's been talking about fact 1 for a year just because you kind of say fact one in hearing there's no law that everybody's got to get upset about it because you're upset about it or that you're going to sort of like you know um it's it's like you know taking a a, an animal carcass and shoving it someone's face like ah right look how scary it is you know people are just like whatever and the other piece of this that i i just remembered is that um comer also had like a investigation into the origins of COVID hearing, right? Which is, I feel like at this point has just become kind of shorthand for Republicans to, um, you know, accuse Democrats of like somehow working with China and like, or not being hard enough on China or, you know, that kind of thing. And it turned out that like one of his quote unquote experts, um, you know, had been like favorably reviewed by David Duke and had all these like white nationalisty ties. And as soon as he got up there, the Democrats were all just like, so tell us about your pal, David Duke. And that became like the only memorable thing to come from the hearing. So it, it is a lesson in like Democrats are seeing firsthand that aggression is paying off a lot better for them than passivity is. Or there's such kind of old fashioned like hand waving of like, well, we know that's not true, but you know, that's not what I want to talk about. They're really just kind of fighting fire with fire a bit more. Yeah, I mean there's always it has always been the case that the democratic staffs and committees are just much better. There's no other way to put it. And and I don't mean just although it is often the case that they are um you know have have greater professional competence. But one of the things, you know, back in the old days, uh, uh, Rep Waxman, you know, Representative uh, mm-hmm. Harry Waxman, Henry Waxman, kind of spacing, uh, ran the oversight, what was then kind of the version of the oversight committee. It was, you know, the investigations committee. And he would do this stuff into smoking and, you know, some chemical that's making everybody sick. And these, these hearings are, uh, you know, very substantive hearings. And they were not like some of them were more partisan investigating something that Reagan's doing or Bush is doing or, or whatever. Um, but a lot of them are just into government oversight. You know, let's look at this. Let's look at that. And what was always the case under Republicans is since they don't really care about government, they don't really they're, they don't really care if, you know, is the EPA doing enough to clean this one thing up or is this happening or is the FDA approving drugs that aren't safe or, you know, they, they don't care. They don't they don't believe in government. So they just kind of don't do that stuff. And and that that difference was always clear. Um, I do think I mean, what you're describing there, that's just an example of ridiculous staff work. You need to know, does this person, is this person like, you know, a business partner of David Duke? You know, that's just like, let's, is there anything bad? You know, that that is just, that's just bad. Um, that's just bad staff work. There's no, there's no other way to put it. But there's also another element of it that you get used to how things work in that world. And in that, in that, that other staff report we were talking about, uh, you know, one of the things that that the Democrats seized on really quickly is a bunch of these FBI whistleblowers. Well, you know, how were they weaponized by the deep state? Well, they were there at January 6th, hang, you know, <laughs> as part of the riot, and they were disciplined for that. And I think the vast majority of people say like, uh, you know, that's a problem. You shouldn't be at a, at a, you shouldn't be participating in a coup. So, that's stupid. And and at some level, um, was it just that Jim Jordan was was thinking no one would would notice that? Or do they just have a kind of a blind spot because 
that's how things roll on, you know, Fox and Breitbart and whatever. And I think it's a little of both. Yeah, I think so. All right. Covered a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. Um, another quality hour of of podcasting goodness. Uh, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get uh, 25% off your order with the promo code TPM at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And that's it for this week. Later. See you next week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 